Welcome to Y4, a new monthly podcast for iTunes. I'm your host, Jim Hill, and I'll be using the show to answer questions that have been submitted by unofficial guide Disney Dish listeners. This time around, I'll be answering a query that Disney Dish fan Matt Cooper sent in last month. Matt wanted to know more about Scruffy, which was an animated feature that Walt Disney Productions had in development in the early 1970s. Matt wants to know what I have to share about this Ken Anderson project. Well, Matt, I can tell you that the company's interest in Scruffy actually dates back to the early 1960s. Walt Disney himself had the studio pursue the movie rights to this Paul Gallico book in 1963. Walt Disney Productions had just finished making The Three Lives of Thomasina, which was based on a 1957 Paul Gallico book, Thomasina, The Cat Who Thought She Was God. I'm serious, folks. That was actually the title of the book. Or the subtitle, I mean. Anyway, Walt really liked how The Three Lives of Thomasina had turned out. So much so that he took the juvenile leads of this Don Chafee movie, eight-year-old Karen Dottris and seven-year-old Matthew Garber, and made them Jane and Michael Banks in the studio's next high-profile production. Maybe you've heard of this movie, Mary Poppins? Not only that, but as I mentioned a moment ago, Walt had the studio pursue the film rights to Paul Gallico's most recent book, Scruffy, which Doubleday had published back in December of 1962. Scruffy, which Gallico described as a diversion rather than a book, deals with the Barbary macaques. These are the only wild monkey population on the European continent. And according to legend, as long as these Gibraltar apes, or rock apes as the locals call them, live on Gibraltar, the British Empire won't fall. And you know who really believed in this legend? British Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill. Which is why when Churchill learned in 1942 that the native population of rock apes on Gibraltar had dwindled down to just seven monkeys, well, Winston wasn't willing to take any chances, especially since at that particular point in World War II, the Allies were still involved in a life-and-death struggle with the Axis powers. To make sure that England had a few extra cards to play in this battle, Churchill actually sent the British Army to Morocco and Algeria to find more rock apes that could then be used to supplement Gibraltar's dwindling colony. Not only that, but Churchill then assigned an officer to the apes to oversee their welfare. Now, after the war, Paul Gallico heard the story of what Winston had done, and he thought, what if the Nazis had ever gotten wind of this. What would have happened if Adolf Hitler, who, let's remember, had a genuine fascination when it came to superstition and the occult, had sent a unit to the southernmost end of the Iberian Peninsula, all with the hope that if these Nazi agents could rid Gibraltar of its rock apes, Germany could then conquer England. Gallico then wondered, what would the Nazis do if they collected all of the rock apes on Gibraltar except one? a certain especially feisty monkey named Scruffy. How far would they be willing to go in their attempt to capture or eliminate this ape? What would that British officer who had been assigned by Winston Churchill himself do to protect the rock apes and prevent the British Empire from falling? How far would he go to keep Scruffy safe? you got to admit, when you listen to these elements, this really does sound like a pretty decent Disney story, especially given the sorts of movies that Disney was making in the 1960s. But what's kind of interesting about Scruffy 
is about the same time the studio had another fantasy comedy in development, which another one that featured plucky Brits matching wits with scheming Nazis during World War II. Maybe you remember that movie, Bedknobs and Broomsticks. What you may not know is Walt originally intended that Scruffy be a live-action film, a gimmick comedy, if you will. One very much in the style of Disney's 1965 release, The Monkey's Uncle, or for that matter, 1967's Monkey's Go Home, or, and or 1971's The Barefoot Executive. You get the idea, right? Disney was going to pair a cute monkey with some British comedian and then use Paul Gallico's Scruffy as the jumping-off point for a new family-friendly comedy. I got to interview Tommy Steele 20 years or so ago. And over the course of that conversation, I asked Steele why he hadn't done more work for Walt Disney Studios after portraying John Lawless in The Happiest Millionaire. Well, to hear Tommy talk, he had done some further work for Disney. Steele, as it turns out, was the original voice of Robin Hood. He'd spent months recording dialogue for the title character of this Walt Disney Animation Studios November 1973 release. Only to then have producer-director Wooly Reitherman decide that Tommy really didn't sound heroic enough, which is why all of Steele's recordings of Robin Hood then got tossed out, and Brian Bedford was then brought in to re-record all of that film's title character dialogue. But in addition to working on the animated version of Robin Hood, Steele revealed to me that Disney had asked him to star in a live-action version of Scruffy, which Bill Walsh, the writer-producer behind such 1960-era Disney hits as The Absent-Minded Professor, Son of Flubber, Mary Poppins, That Darn Cat, and The Love Bug, was in the process of putting together. In fact, during the research phase for today's Y4 podcast, I actually came across an entertainment story from the September 26, 1969 edition of the Pittsburgh Press, or Paul Gallico, as part of an article where this author first talks about how much he enjoyed Walt Disney Studios' adaptation of Thomasina, mentioned that Bill Walsh was prepping as a follow-up to The Love Bug, which, FYI, was the third highest grossing film in 1968, only 2001 A Space Odyssey and Funny Girl sold more tickets that year. Let me quote directly from the article here. Bill Walsh is developing Scruffy for feature production next year. Not only that, but given that Gallico had so enjoyed his time on the set of The Three Lives of Thomasina back in 1962, that he had already sent word to Bill Walsh from his home in France that once production of Scruffy officially got underway, that Gallico would love to make a return visit to Disney Studios. So knowing that, what happened to the live-action version of Scruffy? Well, as I mentioned, Bedknobs and Broomsticks had been in development at Walt Disney Studios for a number of years at this point. In fact, again, as I was researching today's podcast, I came across a story from the June 25, 1966 edition of Billboard magazine, where Disney music executives, as they were talking about how well the LP version of the Mary Poppins soundtrack had sold, mentioned that the studio had, and I'm quoting directly now, other major film musicals on the way, including The Happiest Millionaire, The Jungle Book, and Magic Bedpost, which at that time, anyway, was what Disney's PR department thought they'd be calling Bedknobs and Broomsticks when it finally was released to theaters. Now let's jump back to the fall of 1969. Walt Disney Studios now has two live-action projects that Bill Walsh has written scripts for with Don DeGrady. 
Both are fantasy comedies set during World War II featuring plucky Brits and scheming Nazis. But only one of these projects, thanks to the score that Academy Award-winning composers Richard M. and Robert B. Sherman have written, has the potential to be Disney's next Mary Poppins. So which of these two promising projects should Disney studio executives put in production in early 1970? Any good film fan will tell you it was the Magic Bedpost, a.k.a. Bedknobs and Broomsticks, that actually started shooting in March of 1970, whereas Bill Walsh's screenplay for Scruffy was put on the shelf. Mind you, it didn't sit there all that long. As production on Robin Hood was starting to wind down in late 1972, the folks at Walt Disney Animation Studios then began casting about for an idea that they could then build their next animated feature around. Which brings us to a March 10th, 1973 article, which I found in the archives of the Ottawa Journal. Here, producer-director Willie Reitherman, who at that time was out doing publicity for a new TV special called 50 Happy Years, which was supposed to air on NBC on the wonderful world of Disney as part of Walt Disney Productions' year-long celebration of the studio's 50th anniversary. And Willie, as part of this promotion piece, talked about what was up next for Walt Disney Animation Studios. Again, quoting directly from the article now, Disney's next animated feature, The Adventures of Robin Hood and His Merry Men, will be released later this summer. After that, they're planning on animating Scruffy, Paul Gallico's story of a Gibraltar ape. That film will then be followed by an animated treatment of Marjorie Sharp's story, The Venerable Prisoner's Aid Society. Now, anyone who visited the old animation building on the Disney lot in Burbank back in 73 was eventually, as part of that tour, taken up to F-Wing, which is where Disney legend Ken Anderson had been laboring at this point for the better part of a year to turn Bill Walsh's scruffy screenplay into proper fodder for an animated feature. And from what I've been told, Anderson's office was covered floor to ceiling with concept art for Barbary apes, not to mention the Nazi rats. Yep, the villains of this proposed animated feature had recruited rodents to come help them bridge Gibraltar of its rock apes. And that, in the end, may have been what ultimately doomed Scruffy, preventing this Paul Gallico story from actually going into production at Walt Disney Studios. You see, one of the criticisms that Bedknobs and Broomsticks had repeatedly been hit with after it was released to theaters in the fall of 71 was how inappropriate it was that Nazis had been the villains of this Disney film, that turning Hitler's crack combat troops into the comic foils for Eglantine Price had been an extremely poor taste. Now, you have to understand that this sort of criticism is being leveled at Disney just as Hogan's Heroes, a sitcom that was actually set inside of a German concentration camp during World War II, was ending a six-year run on CBS. And let's not forget about Jerry Lewis's Nazi impersonation comedy, Which Way to the Front, which had been out in theaters just as Bedknobs and Broomsticks was wrapping production in June of 1970. Or just here previous that Mel Brooks had won an Academy Award for Best Screenplay for the Kisscrip for the Producers, which a weird little bend on Bedknobs and Broomsticks being a, a musical, this is a movie about two unscrupulous Broadway producers who are trying to make a fortune by mounting a surefire flop musical. 
which in this case, anyway, was supposed to be Springtime for Hitler, a gay romp with Adolf and Eva at Birchgarten. But those were other people, other production companies in Hollywood. Disney, which at that time touted its studio's releases as being the finest in family entertainment, held itself to a different standard. And if there were really moviegoers out there who were actually offended by seeing Nazis in bedknobs and broomsticks, well, the studio wasn't going to make that mistake again. And since Scruffy was obviously set during World War II, and the key conflict of this Paul Gallico book involved German soldiers trying to remove all of the rock apes from Gibraltar, well, there was just no getting around that whole Nazi thing. Mind you, Kenerson tried to argue that Scruffy's villains weren't really Nazis, but rather they were rats that just worked for the German high command. Ron Miller, the head of Disney Studios at the time, didn't buy Ken's explanation. Which is why he then ordered Wooly Reitherman to shut down development of Scruffy and have Disney Animation Studios redouble its efforts on getting the venerable Prisoner Aid Society, or as this animated feature eventually became known at Disney, the Rescuers, getting that ready for production. Now, you want to know the really ironic part of this story? Wooly Reitherman, the producer-director at Disney Feature Animation, was a decorated pilot during World War II. And in his role as a major in the Army's Air Transport Command, he had flown all over the world to far-flung places like China, India, Burma, and yes, even Gibraltar. And Reitherman had actually been fired upon by German airmen as he was ferrying desperately needed planes back and forth through hostile airspace. So given his personal experience during World War II, I have always wondered what Wooly's reaction was when Ron Miller told him that they were shutting down Scruffy because audiences who went to Disney movies in the early 1970s didn't like seeing Nazis. I always imagined that <laughs> Reitherman's response would be something along this lines. Well, I didn't like seeing Nazis either back in 1943 and 1944, which is why I always tried to fly around them. By the way, Scruffy wasn't the only animated feature that Walt Disney Animation Studios had in the works during this era that had to be shut down or significantly retooled story-wise in order to refrain from offending what Ron Miller thought Disney family audiences' delicate sensibilities were. This is why the animated version of The Rescuers totally ditched the plot of Marjorie Sharp's first book, so instead of Bernard and Bianca rescuing a Norwegian poet from the sinister and dangerous Black Castle, which even at a 10-year-old's level of reading comprehension is a pretty obvious stand-in for the Cold War-era Soviet Union, we got a movie that actually took its inspiration from Marjorie Sharp's second book in this series, uh, the one from 1962 called Miss Bianca, where we had a little girl called Patience rather than Penny, who worked as a slave for the Diamond Duchess rather than Madame Medusa. Me, personally, I kind of wish that Walt Disney Animation Studio had gone ahead with their original concept for The Rescuers, which was this movie that was going to be the animated equivalent of a James Bond film. Only, instead of 007, there were these two little field mice who were going to be outfitted with all those incredible gadgets and then have to take on arch supervillains. <laughs> Somewhere... In Disney's animation research library in Glendale, there are stacks and stacks of storyboards and concept art for that version of The Rescuers, 
which featured Bernard and Bianca trying to rescue a poet from a Cuban prison rather than the Black Castle. And it was supposed to have climaxed with this exciting boat chase through the Bahamas in the middle of a hurricane as the bad guys tried to stop Bernard and Bianca from getting that poet back to the United States by firing machine guns at their boat. Given that 1970 era's managers of Walt Disney Productions wouldn't allow Scruffy to go into production because it had some Nazis in it, is there any wonder that this earlier version of The Rescuers got deep-sixed because of all the machine gun fire? Anyway, that's all I've got about Scruffy, Matt, which isn't to say that the Walt Disney Company didn't try to get other films based on Paula Gallico's books off the ground over the past 50 years. Hermione Badley, who played Ellen, the maidservant in Mary Poppins, loved to tell the story about how Walt Disney bought the film rights to Gallico's 1958 novel, Mrs. Aris Goes to Paris, in 1965, just because he wanted Hermione to play the title character in a Disney-produced movie version of that book. Mind you, Walt supposedly had this particular Gallico project in development at his studio during the summer of 66. And like so many of Walt's late-in-the-game passion projects, movies like Khrushchev at Disneyland, which was to have starred Peter Ustinov as the that Soviet premiere sneaking away during his September 1959 state visit to the United States so Nikita could then experience the happiest place on Earth, once Walt's health began to fail in the fall of 66, a lot of these would-be films were placed on Disney's back burner and were ultimately never revived or revisited. That said, some five years after Walt passed, the studio purchased the movie rights to one last Paul Gallico book. It was called The Abandoned, and told the story of Tommy, a lonely young boy who rescued a tabby cat from being hit by a truck. Unfortunately, the boy winds up being struck by this same motor vehicle, and when Tommy awakens, he's no longer a boy, but a cat now. And it's up to the tabby that he rescued from being squashed, a feline named Jenny, to educate Tommy about how one goes about being a cat in the human world. <laughs> Mind you, the irony of, of Walt Disney Studios optioning this particular Gallico book is that Paul originally had Tommy living in Blitzer, London, and since Bedknobs and Broomsticks hadn't sold nearly as many tickets as Mary Poppins when it was released for the holiday period in 1971, an edict came down from Ron Miller's office that said Walt Disney Studios wasn't allowed to make any more movies set in or around World War II. Which is why the story department at Disney Animation Studios shifted the abandoned setting from London to San Francisco. And for the next 40 years, Disney story artists would repeatedly pull out the abandoned and see if there was a way they hadn't come up with yet to translate this Paul Gallico book to the screen. Five years ago, I got to interview Disney legend Bernie Mattinson. This was back in the late spring of 2011, right when Walt Disney Animation Studios was getting ready to release its hand-drawn Winnie the Pooh feature. And Bernie told me that prior to Joe Grant's death back in May of 2005, he, Joe, and Vance Gary had been taking yet another run at the abandons, uh, seeing if these three veteran storymen could finally deliver on all the cinematic possibilities found in this Paul Gallico book, and that maybe they could finally serve up the sort of story that the higher-ups at Walt Disney Animation Studios would ultimately be excited enough to make a movie about. 
That's why I'm always a little hesitant to say a project is truly dead at Disney. Because the talented artists, animators, and story artists who, who work at, at that part of the company are absolutely tenacious. And even when it sometimes takes decades, just look at the 60-plus years of effort Walt Disney Studios staffers put into translating Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen to the big screen. I mean, it wasn't until somebody figured out that Anna and Elsa were actually sisters that Disney then finally found a way to make Frozen. These folks just don't give up. That's why I still hold out hope that Frady Cat will someday get made at Disney, because this particular project, which is supposed to tell an Alfred Hitchcock-inspired suspense story from the point of view of the family cat, always sounded like it had lots of great cinematic possibilities. And that's one of those projects where Disney had actually begun voice work on it. And if you can believe it, the family canary in Freddy Cat was supposed to be voiced by Samuel Jackson. If you folks like these sorts of behind-the-scenes stories of what actually goes on at Walt Disney Animation Studios, then you may want to check out the talk I'm going to be giving down in New York City next month. Uh, this one's going to be entitled, It's a Jungle Book Out There, and will take you from Disney legend Bill Peet's initial attempt to turn Richard Kipling's classic tales into an animated feature. And, and just so you know, Walt hated Bill's take on the Jungle Book. All the way through to John Favreau's live-action CG epic, which has been sitting at the top of the box office for most of the past month. Last time I checked, Disney's newest version of The Jungle Book was just inches away from a worldwide gross of $800 million, which is a pretty nice chunk of change for reimagining of a Disney animated feature. Anyway, if you'd be up for attending this talk, which will be held at H.P. Burger on 127th West 43rd Street in New York, New York, on June 5th from 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m., please drop a line to the nice folks at ETC Custom Events at events at etccustomevents.com. That's it for this month's Y4. If you have any questions you'd like to submit for a future podcast, please send those emails along to y4 at jimhillmedia.com. Today's show was produced by Aaron Adams. So thanks for listening, folks, and have a great day, okay?